Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founder of the podcast. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming back one of our popular guests, Dr. Brian Waterman, sports medicine surgeon and team physician at Wake Forest University. Dr. Waterman was the lead author on a paper titled Primary Repair of Traumatic Distal Biceps Ruptures in a Military Population, Clinical Outcomes of Single versus Two Incision Technique, which was published in the September 2017 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Lorenzo Navarro-Figueroa and Brett Owens. Welcome, Brian, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Brian, we've worked together for many years now taking care of military patients. Can you start us off by describing for our listeners the unique characteristics of what we call the military athlete and how military service members are both similar to and different from civilian patients? Sure. Thanks again for having me, Chris. It's it's certainly a great thing that you're you're doing with the podcast and and I've continued to enjoy them on a regular basis. Um in terms of our military uh, patients, uh, I really consider it the utmost honor and privilege to have taken care of them. Uh, our warrior athletes, as we call them, um, are incredibly high demand, and and you certainly see that as they segue to Tricare beneficiaries and and those through the uh, Veterans Affairs. But it truly does represent a, a distinct subset of patients that even among uh, those military patients may have varying degrees of of occupational demands and, and activity levels. But on a, on a baseline level or core level, uh, those active service members need to maintain and adhere to standards of physical fitness, typically both for cardiovascular and strength testing. And so within that, uh, irrespective of service, you have to be able to carry a fighting load, which can be in excess of 90 pounds. You need to undergo combat deployments under austere conditions and participate in uh, routine fitness activities. These patients, probably if you extrapolate them out to, to Department of Labor categories, fall largely within heavy and very heavy labor classification. Also, they can very uh, commonly extrapolate out to those individuals involved in competitive athletics. As far as how they relate to civilian patients, there's a couple of unique features. One is there's there's not really a very good way of them to modify their activity. So within the rank structure, Oftentimes, if, if you have a period of time lost to injury, uh, this could be very difficult to uh, accommodate, and that's where the military uh, discharge process enters in. For Army specifically, you can be on a temporary duty profile or restrictions for a period of about 12 months, beyond which you either have to be on a permanent restrictive profile or you'll undergo a military discharge board. And so that's when one of the endpoints you'll see very often in many of these studies. It doesn't necessarily imply that it's a failure, but it just indicates that uh, uh, the limitations were too severe for continued military service for that timeline. Thanks for that really thorough description of the unique characteristics of taking care of the military patients that I think some folks may or may not have familiarity with. And I think that leads us into one of my questions for you today, which is addressing, you know, the overall study topic and design itself. You've told me in the past, this is one of your favorite clinical outcome studies that you've done. Can you tell me what it is that you enjoyed most about doing this particular project? 
Yeah, I think very often we, we kind of conflate the clinical outcomes that we see among a general population, and we try to apply them to a more athletic niche. And uh, what, what I wanted to do is generate some data that we could counsel our patients on. Uh, when we have a physically active military subset that really desires a return to weightlifting activity and really other high-demand upper extremity function, I wanted to be able to counsel them appropriately and give them accurate information about their perioperative risk and what the chances are of them returning to uh, their functional day-to-day -day outcomes. Uh, within that, I also want to try to be able to offer a perspective on best practices, trying to quantify risk factors for adverse outcomes, and, and particularly look at this issue of chronicity and surgical technique on outcomes. You know, thankfully, we were able to show that there was a near-uniform return to, to peak physical function with a very low re-rupture rate and long-term repercussions. And that's something I think we can bring back to, one, our, our athletes, to our military athletes, and then also uh, our command structure within the military framework. I like how you use patient situation and patient needs to kind of generate your, your research question and develop a study that could help you then circle back and provide feedback for them. Your study looked at primary repairs of distal bicep ruptures in military patients. Before getting to the operating room, what is your standard approach to these patients with suspected distal biceps injuries? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think that this may vary between providers, but, but I do believe that an early evaluation is beneficial to confirm your, your clinical diagnosis. With that said, the, the physical exam can be largely nonspecific. You know, they can present with echimosis, some focal tenderness, weakness with various different uh, motions, particularly flexion and supination. Um, but it's the ideal situation where you kind of confirm that reverse Popeye deformity or identify a palpable and unstable distal biceps tendon. Those don't often present though, and, and very often you can get a false negative with a hook test, and that's usually because while there's a full thickness uh, disruption at the distal attachment, the Lacertus fibrosis can really prevent its further proximal migration and, in a way, uh, confuse the examiner. So for those individuals, uh, I really will um, usually get some advanced imaging if it's an equivocal case or I suspect a partial injury that really has failed a limited course of conservative treatment. And for me, that, that can be either an MRI to, to better elucidate that, that tendon quality as well as attachment, but then also uh, a dynamic ultrasound assessment may also offer better diagnostic ability depending on what your radiology and office resources provide. Thanks, that's a fantastic approach that I think uh, all of our listeners could benefit from, trainees and experienced surgeons alike. Digging into the heart of this study, one of the primary outcomes measures was the rate of adverse patient outcomes you compared the single to two incision surgical repairs and found an overall complication rate of 16% in the single incision group versus 7% in the two incision group. And while this wasn't statistically significant, it was over two times higher. And this is consistent with other studies in the literature on the topic. Can you speak to the types of complications seen in each group and why you think they're differing? Yeah, thank you. And this is definitely one that I, I again, wanted to look at and compare so we can offer our patients uh, a counseling about their perioperative risk. 
I would say that this continues to be an area of ongoing debate, not just around distal biceps repair, but but clinical outcome studies in general. Because uh, within our studies, I think we've we've traditionally erred on the side of just comprehensively reporting outcomes, even these transient post-operative issues, to offer a better sense to patients uh, on what they can expect post-operatively. With that said, the question definitely is engaged whether these are truly complications or just the nature of surgical site morbidity. Uh, when we have a saphenous paresthesias after a hamstring harvest or some slight numbness around a clavicle fracture, these aren't reported as complications. And yet when we do these distal biceps repairs, I think we're a little bit myopic in how we report these. With regards to your questions, when we organize uh, our, our data according to specific or overall complications, we found no statistically significant differences. And many of the complications we see are, are often related to the exposure. Um, HO can really be mitigated with, with copious irrigation, with, with careful hemostasis, and then really being careful with a dissection through the interosseous membrane if you're using a two-incision technique. In terms of the socket drilling uh, and avoiding fracture or other um, potential atraumatic re-rupture, you want to ensure that there's a central socket placed uh, and, and that it's proportionate to the size of the tendon as well as the proximal radius. Because if you're slightly eccentric or um, off base, you can lead to early fracture or compromise your aperture fixation. Excellent. You uh, not only described complications, but also touched on some of your surgical tips for avoiding them, which was going to be my next question. So diving into uh, something a little bit different, we, uh, we looked and saw in the results, even though multiple studies, including yours, documented a higher complication rate with the single versus the two incision technique, where the single incision approach seemed to continue to gain popularity among surgeons. In your study, over 75% of the repairs done were through the single incision. Why do you think this is, and do you think it even matters? It's certainly something where if you're a student of history, you can see how the, the management of the distal biceps has really come full circle. Initially, the concerns were with the initial single incision technique that there was a high rate of uh, neurovascular injury. And so with that, the, uh, the two incision technique was was designed. And uh, with that, subsequently, there was kind of this traditional flow back to the uh, the single incision technique because as our instrumentation became easier to adapt and use, uh, it also led to more reproducible outcomes and avoided the requirement for a second incision. I think many of the current generation tend to err towards the single incision technique using a small transverse incision about three or four centimeters distal to the uh, antecubital uh, crease. Um, and we're really able to get the majority of the dissection that we need. Um, I don't think it matters per se, but I think ultimately your fixation strategy tends to dictate the approach. Uh, for me, I, I do believe that a aperture fixation with an interference screw and a button technique do offer a belt and suspenders type technique um, that uh, offers sound fixation and for an early expedited rehabilitation protocol. Um, but uh, much like many techniques, there are, are definitely those pitfalls that you have to be cognizant of. 
Um, in terms of the two incision technique, I think this is traditionally seen with probably more the older generation or those that are using a more uh, streamlined and low cost technique, which is drilling transosseous tunnels. Uh, but I think that's very serviceable as well. So within the limits of of what you provide, I think you got to do what's best in your own hands uh, to generate a good outcome for the patient. And both have, have been found to be associated with uh, extremely successful outcomes. Excellent comments. Thanks. Brian, you're a experienced researcher. I think your expertise and your experience does lend itself to the ability to answer my next question uh, in an insightful way. There's been comments on these large retrospective database studies in that they span outcomes across many facilities, multiple surgeons, non-standardized rehab protocols, and surgical techniques. What are your personal thoughts on the strengths and weaknesses of this type of study? And certainly one that uh, we have to be aware of. But what we gain in statistical power, sometimes I think we lose in, in granularity of data. You know, there was 290 uh, distal biceps treated in this study, and all are among uh, fairly high demand uh, uh, warrior athletes. But within that, there were 66 separate uh, military treatment centers. So within that, you definitely have the capacity for for variations in technique, um, also deviations in, in experience, and certainly performance bias from uh, individuals that are performing higher and lower volume. What you also see in the in the Dumphy and, and Merzion study uh, from the Kaiser group in Southern California is they showed uh, varying degrees of complications based on year, years of experience. And so that certainly can play in in our predominantly younger uh, surgeon subset within the military. Also, we were unable to, and at least in this study, be able to quantify strength measures and patient-reported outcomes. And so those are some of the things that, that we have forgone for um, greater statistical power. Yeah, I think this is one of the stronger studies that I've seen that, that you've done or that anybody's done through the military database studies where, you know, the outcomes are directly related to problems that we see on a fairly frequent basis in our population. And I think the results from your study are directly contributing to the point of care delivery by as you said, sometimes younger surgeons uh, seeing these highly active patients in a high demand job. Based on all your experience, what's your current surgical technique for distal biceps repairs? Since square one, I've, I've really uh, adopted and tried to perfect my technique using a single anterior incision and a, a tension slide approach with, uh, with combined aperture and uh, button fixation. Uh, I think that this offers a very reproducible and cosmetic approach, and uh, patients oftentimes have very limited pain. They have excellent function and excellent restoration of, of strength. I've not seen the need to adapt to a second incision technique, and, and one of the issues that people have been concerned about all the while is whether you could, one, get to the appropriate footprint through a single anterior incision. And with maximal supination, I've found that that that's been possible. Uh, also, when when performing the uh, um, dual construct fixation, uh, I think that the tension slide allows you to dunk the tendon in, but the screw ultimately prevents either suture cutout 
and uh, offers uh, also aperture fixation, which improves the strength and the reliability of your repair. You know, within our study, found that it, it really validated this technique. It showed high rates of return, and uh, and this is one that I think will continue to be our approach moving forward. Yeah, I think this is an excellent example of, uh, you know, literature support now for a technique that's been used uh, frequently, uh, safely, and effectively. So uh, thank you for your contribution to care that all of us provide. All right, last minute, Brian, any take-home points or interesting findings that you want to summarize for us in a minute or less? Yeah, I think when you talk to patients with distal biceps ruptures, one of the things that, that you should emphasize is it's a very reproducible outcome. Uh, you have nearly 97% of patients returning to full physical function with very limited morbidity. There is the chance for transient neuropraxia or some sensory loss that typically will improve with time. And uh, as long as done technically well, this patient will likely restore to full strength and functional activity about the 12 to 16 week recovery course. Excellent. Thank you, Brian, uh, again, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Dr. Waterman's article titled Primary Repair of Traumatic Distal Biceps Ruptures in a Military Population, Clinical Outcomes of Single versus Two Incision Technique can be found in the September 2017 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.